disconnected uh i am entirely free of intrusion yep not even on the internet or anything that's right yeah not on the internet uh i got my tinfoil hat on mm-hmm. uh i am i'm ready i'm ready to talk about this top this subject excellent excellent so how you been how you been it, it's been a, been about a week since we last spoke yeah we're starting to get back into the swing of things before i go on vacation um yeah but uh yeah no i i had an interesting time i had just like a day trip to dc this week where i I flew in in the morning and flew out in the evening and it was like totally uneventful it was it was i was shocked um it was great and uh i did uber for the first time um as a customer um and and i thought that was a pretty good experience i did that in dc and what was interesting is i i did it i tried uber x to see what would happen you know if it's like uh um you know, you know what sort of you know, what the experience would be, and I was surprised. It was it ended up being uh, on the ride from the airport. It was like a, a Lincoln Town Car, and then on the way back, um, it was just some dude in a, a nice new uh, uh, Camry. Um, but it was it was overall a, it was a great experience. Yeah, yeah. No, I've had uh, I recently jumped up on Uber too, and uh, uh, I have also had an excellent experience. Uh, given the state of taxis in Washington D.C., I am completely unsympathetic uh, to any of the arguments against uh, from the uh, uh, from the from the taxi folks. Uh, they've been running crappy service in D.C. for as long as I can remember, um, and so it's nice to see uh, Uber get in there and shake things up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I, I I've seen articles too comparing Uber to Amazon. In terms of uh, you know disrupting uh, uh, an inefficient business model, and and mm-hmm. but this this is much more highly regulated, I think. Maybe and, well, the publishing industry has their own things going on, but uh, I think there are a lot of right. parallels. Mm-hmm. Well, also I don't like the term disruption. This is probably for a different show, but I, I, don't, I don't like the term disruption for its own sake. Uh, the disruption isn't what's special about it. What's special about it is that Uber has figured out a way to do something. Has figured out a way. He's, it's a better mousetrap, right? Um, mm-hmm. They have figured out a way to make an existing system that we're all very, very complacent to uh, much, much better. Uh, and uh, in fact, it is so good that people are willing to break the law uh, in order to use it. Um, so uh, I think that you know, cities like DC, cities like New York have to take a long look at their system for licensure uh, for these, you know, for the hack system, um, oh, which is all for the good. Um, it's probably, mm-hmm. That's a system that has needed reform for some time. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm excited. My friend, uh, Matthew Burton, uh, just started a new podcast that I want to recommend to everybody. Uh, the title of it is let's talk calmly about security and privacy. Um, and we'll include a link to it in the, uh, in the show notes, but, uh, he came in strong right out of the gate. So the, the topic of this podcast is, uh, yes, talking calmly about security and privacy, but it comes at it from a really interesting angle because Matthew used to work for one of the intelligence agencies, uh, and so he is kind of deeply conflicted about the Snowden revelations and everything else. Uh, on one hand, he understands how the system works inside. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think is probably a little bit more comfortable with it than other people are. Um, but on the other hand, as a citizen, obviously he has you know serious questions about, uh, about what's going on. He finds himself of two minds. And in order to kind of suss it out for himself, he's now doing this podcast where he interviews people whose opinion he respects um, who are not partisan or hysterical and kind of talking through all the issues with them. Um, hmm. And uh, the first one that he did uh, is with uh, Clay Shirky, uh, oh. famous internet thinker. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's just an hour of two very, very smart people approaching the problem with kind of no preconceived notions and a very open mind. Uh, and it's absolutely fascinating. Um, just to give you a little taste, uh, Clay approaches the question um, with this idea that um, Snowden and, to a lesser degree, uh, Manning, uh, both of those leaks, uh, function as kind of spot checks on the, on the surveillance system. Um, so in other words, almost like a red teaming of the surveillance system. So uh, the idea is that, well, so if one out of 50 pieces of intelligence that we collect, or one out of 
5,000 pieces of intelligence that we collect, if that is revealed to the public, are they going to be appalled? Um, mm -hmm. Is that, you know, are they going to be surprised that we are collecting that kind of intelligence? Um, mm. And so using that as a kind of a litmus test, which is kind of an interesting way to think about it. Um, and it kind of relates that to what we already do with like the grand jury system, uh, where before a government is even allowed to begin to exercise its authority, uh, it needs approval from basically 12 random people off the street. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyway, so really interesting podcast. Um, I'm not doing it any justice. Uh, everyone should go and subscribe to it immediately. Um, it's at uh, listen.matthewburton.org, and we'll uh, include a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, and I think by the time we're done with this episode, people will be scared enough to uh, to listen to it. Just so, just so. That's right. If we do our jobs, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So what are, what are we covering this week? Well, so we're talking about surveillance. Uh, we're talking about mm -hmm. government surveillance. We're talking about company corporate surveillance uh, over land, sea, and air. Um, mm -hmm. We're talking about personal surveillance. And just kind of in general, we're going to be talking about that vague but pervasive sense that you are being monitored at this very moment. And, mm -hmm. and I say you specifically, Dave, because I am fully protected by my uh, full-sized Faraday cage and tinfoil hat. Mm -hmm. And air gap. Yep. And, and air gap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so but what's on the, uh, since I have no internet connection, I can't see our, our ether pad. So what's on the cutting room floor this week? Yeah. So if, if you aren't scared by what we say, uh, we have a lot more horrifying things inside of the cutting room floor this week. So there's a, actually a clown motel. So, um, uh, so we got, yeah. So it's like, if, if you think like super eight is bad, you check this clown motel out. Um, it's, it's terrifying. Um, check that, check out the gift shop in there. Um, we also give you, uh, it, so inside your Faraday cage, you could hang this up. Um, it's a nice poster. It's a field guide to, uh, doppelgangers. Um, so you can keep track of your, your double. Um, mm -hmm. and then, um, also we have some other things like, uh, um, uh, CIA funded, uh, uh, media. So such as, um, uh, and the animal farm, uh, movie, uh, slash cartoon and also, um, Dr. Zhivago. Um, and then, um, also how you can, uh, uh, get your own Faraday cage. I guess you could wear your own Faraday cage, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. To have a, yeah. a portable Faraday cage walking around with you so that you are uh, protected from all of the uh, orbiting mind control satellites. Right, uh, all the radio waves. Nice. So let's get let's get started. Yes, please. Yeah. So, um, so there's uh, a couple of things. I know we've been talking about Dropbox and alternatives to Dropbox and having your own. Uh, Dropbox, and there's, you know, we talked about the transporter, um, and then there's, there are a couple other ones that came out. Um, there's a, a thing called Shirley Box, um, and so that is a, uh, a private Dropbox based on Raspberry Pis. So it's, um, I guess it was like a Kickstarter-funded thing where it's this thing. It kind of looks like a transporter, this like weird-looking device where you drop in a Raspberry Pi, and um, it becomes an endpoint for you to have your own cloud storage. And then there's another box uh, that's called ProtoNet, which is uh, very similar. Um, that uh, uh, that they claim that it's NSA proof, quote unquote, um, which I dispute. Like nothing is proof. It's it's typically resistant. Um, you know, there's nothing that's uh, you know bulletproof. Uh, you know, it's bullet resistant. You can eventually make a bullet that could get through something. Yeah, and then we got we got some news. Um, and what what's I think this is your article. You saw it, the economics of bulk surveillance. Yeah, so Bruce Schneier, you know, famous security thinker, um, had mm -hmm. a had a link to a, a really interesting paper um, on the economics of uh, of kind of national level surveillance or, or bulk surveillance. Um, and uh, well, as as it says on the on the tin, it's it's the economics of it, right? So um, the the thesis is that. Uh, if you are putting together a surveillance infrastructure, uh, it, it naturally leads to monopoly. Um, and that's due to kind of three things. Like first is the uh, network effects. Um, the second is the low marginal costs. Um, and the third is technical lock-in. Uh, and really what he's describing is, uh, you know, for the same reasons that the industry is moving towards cloud and cloud computing, mm -hmm. um, for exactly the same reasons, it makes sense to... Uh, accrete all of the surveillance responsibility to a single organization, um, which has some obviously interesting uh, kind of policy and, and ideological consequences. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, like a great read, especially for folks coming from an IT background. Uh, so uh, include a link to that in, uh, in the show notes. 
Um, and as if to illustrate the point, uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny. So you have two industries, you have the IT industry on one end, and then you have the government on the other, uh, who are currently really kind of at odds with each other over the surveillance, right? Uh, Google mm -hmm. and Apple are uh, unhappy with the fact that uh, the government has been spying on them uh, or tapping their kind of internal communications mm -hmm. um, as well as the communications of their customer. And so um, they have kind of all gotten together, AOL, Apple, Dropbox, Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, Microsoft, Twitter, Yahoo, and friends uh, have all gotten together and are now uh, well, they published an open letter um, asking the U.S. government uh, to reform uh, its data collection programs, uh, which is uh, an interesting case of like the market, uh, the market kind of functioning. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these these people don't want to alienate their customers, and so they're uh, asking the government uh, to quit, you know, alienating their customers. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But this is ironic, right, Dave? This is a little bit. There's a touch of irony to this. Oh, it kills um, me. It kills me. Yeah. You know, it's it's yeah. like the you get somebody like Facebook saying. You know, hey government, how dare you collect all this information on and and you know use it and everything? It's like and they're doing the exact same thing, um, mm -hmm. and it also goes back to some of the things that we talked about in the past of of like a lot of this stuff is out there like out in the public and you know so it's like if somebody has like a boombox or radio and they're they're playing that radio if somebody's sitting in a public space um, and they can hear that radio. Um, that should be fair game in my mind, um, but it, it, like to me, it's it, it just drives me crazy that it's it's almost hypocritical where you have these companies that are collecting all kind of data, um, but and it's okay for them to do it, but it's not okay for um, the government to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. Although there are, and we talked about this on the show before, there are like meaningful differences between the data that Facebook collects, uh, which is well, first of all, it's ostensibly consensual, right? Like I have, I am giving Facebook this information on purpose. Um, whether it's fully informed consent is something else, but um, it, I am entering into kind of a, a deliberate relationship with Facebook. Whereas in the case of the government, not only is it compulsory, um, but it is also secret. Uh, and then third, it's occurring uh, from an organization that has a monopoly on violence, mm -hmm. um, which, which as far as I know, Facebook does not yet have a monopoly on violence. Um, so I think, you know, if, if Facebook was operating its own Air Force, I would probably feel differently about them uh, accumulating the, the, that kind of information, right, I suppose. Um, but but there's, other, there's other parts of it, too, is that because these companies interact with us in kind of a retail or consumer setting, they have m even more opportunities to listen and pay attention to what we're doing than the government does, right? Uh, as an example, the government has no way of knowing what my heart rate is right now, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. Um, they have no way of collecting, you know, meaningful biometric data. Whereas if I wear a Google fit, which was announced, uh, a couple weeks ago, um, you know, if I'm wearing a Google fit device, uh, that thing is keeping track of how many steps, how active I am, my calories, my heart rate, all the rest of it. And that gets thrown up into the Google cloud, presumably so that they can sell me stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, that is kind of, that is access to the kinds of data that I'm sure, uh, you know, the NSA and friends would love to have. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I, I've heard, you know, like you see, like, I don't know if you've noticed this periodically, like you go past like a, uh, in the airport, like the TSA area, and there's like a whole bunch of computers that are sitting up and they're like scanning something. I, I don't know what they're looking for, whether it's radio waves or who knows if it's biometrics or body temperature of some sweaty guy trying to get through security or, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Then, and so that's, that's interesting. But then, you know, there's like you said, there's this whole trend of like Fitbit and all that where it, it seems innocuous where it's like, oh, I wear this and then it could tell me, you know, whether, you know, I can measure that against my goals and all that. But I could all, uh, like you're saying, I, I can imagine this being useful for other things like like uh, like positive things that that consumers would want, like say like, oh, I could actually use my heartbeat for like video games or something like that. So you know, the, or like exercise things. So the, you know, it, it can monitor to see whether my heartbeat goes up or, and it could, it could change the tempo of the game based upon that. Um, mm -hmm. And so that, that could be interesting. But the other side of it would be like, oh, well, if I'm watching um, Hulu and then there's an ad for Hulu that's on, I could, I could measure my biometrics to, to see whether this person has any sort of physiological reaction to the ad that's being played as, as you're watching television. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Um, and so, it, it, and so it's, it's, you know, it's funny to think about only, what, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, people thought putting their credit card online was lunacy. Um, and, uh, and, and now we are like, yeah, exactly. You're like totally comfortable putting like critical health data um, and like real time health data um, mm-hmm. up on the up on the web. Um, it's amazing how inured we've become to this. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the part of this overall debate too, right? Is um, companies like Facebook, like Google, like Apple, um, have made us so comfortable with sharing this information um, with the with the idea that it is at least kind of anonymized, or that we're at least uh, you know as part of this sea of 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 people who are putting their data up, um, there's kind of uh, safety in in the perceived anonymity of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when in, when in fact it's exactly the opposite. It is extremely identifiable data to you. Um, yeah. It's just it's interesting. The psychology of this is interesting. Um, the difference between uh, government and commercial activity is interesting. Um, this and like you were suggesting, like this uh, this sense of emergent threats. Um, so if I hand over my health data in one case and I hand over my email in another case and I hand over my documents in another case, those three things in isolation may not be threatening, but what happens when I do all three of those things together and somebody's able to correlate them and cross-reference them? Mm-hmm. Um, now suddenly the threat is, uh, kind of exponentially greater, mm-hmm. um, than the sum of any of those three things. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of interesting and mind boggling to think about. Um, it's almost like Google can, uh, read read our minds. Yeah. Soon, soon they will be able to, um, there's, there's another thing that came out and I was surprised to see this. Um, it's a thing called mind R D R, uh, I guess mind reader. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's this thing, it looks like a pair of headphones that you wear. So not earbuds, but like headphones, but, but it also, instead of like a boom microphone that goes in front of your mouth, it's a, a boom that like, you put on your forehead and it will read your thoughts and you can control Google glass with it. So, so like I could be like looking at something and then I could have my mind tell Google glass to take a picture. Um, and supposedly it works. Huh? Interesting. Um, so is it limited in what, in the kind of information it can collect? Um, or is it a, I mean, because I've seen like mind reader, like we were talking about like the, uh, (laughs) <laughs> what was it the uh, the Raspberry Pi car that can be driven by a guinea pig or, or I mm-hmm. forget what it was oh the um, goldfish that, but but it would yeah, use the goldfish. a camera yeah, thank you yeah right yeah it yeah. would use a camera to see to physically see where the goldfish swam in the bowl um, and mm-hmm. to, to have it move forward where this is it's but, actually reading yeah. uh, brain waves and and yeah. um, I was looking at the the video about it and so I'm I'm like I first saw this and I'm like oh this has to be from my onion feed and I, I have to be reading this, I, you know, this has to be, thing. This, this has to be a joke. Right. And I'm looking at it and it's this big goofy thing with this plat, you know, it's like the, the whole Google glass thing is probably not the most sexy thing for people to wear out in public, um, you know, outside of San Francisco and, you know, the Bay area um, from a fashion statement or, you know, it just turns people off. But now if all of a sudden you have this thing on your, on your forehead and, and this whole apparatus you're wearing, um, I don't know. You look more like a, a cyborg, um, and 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 so it's like I'm I'm watching a video. I'm reading that about it on the page, and I'm just thinking that no, there's no way that this is going to be successful. And then, but I actually I, I gave the video uh, a good look, and it the guy said that um, they're only measuring certain parts of the brain right now, but in the future they're they're measuring others. And I don't know what all the details are there. But the other thing that he talked about was, um, you know, it's and I, and I was thinking that man, this is just going to fail. Who's going to want to use this sort of thing? It's it's like the smartwatch thing. It, it just I don't think is going to take off. But then he's like talking about well, for the physically disabled, um, that could be, you know, that that could actually be pretty liberating for them. And I'm I'm like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that's you know, like a Stephen Hawking sort of situation where the, sure. the person is disabled. That that could actually be. Um, a really empowering uh, device for them. So I, I sort of changed my opinion after that. And then I'm thinking about, well, maybe there are even military uses too, because like you hear about soldiers in the field that, you know, it's like, uh, you know, running around with a tough book to, you know, to call in artillery or, or whatever. Um, and, and then that's moved to like a tablet or like a wearable that they have mounted on their, on a wristband on their sleeve, sort of like a, a NFL quarterback that has the, the play calling on there. Um, if you can even get away from that to have your hands free, um, to be able to 
uh, you know, see where people are and, and to be able to issue commands and all that I, I, and keep both hands on your rifle, that that could have a positive use. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Or the that's guy awesome. holding the gun, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Um, well, actually, I want to go back to this. The, so you don't think smart smartwatches are going to take off? Because I've actually changed my opinion about this. So really? I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so tell, me, tell me, give me the case for, for smartwatches being frivolous. Um, the... The displays are too small. The ergonomics, I actually have to lift my wrist up to look at my wrist, and I think that's an awkward position to look at for a long period of time. So, like, you think about repetitive stress disorder and, you know, like like keyboard or mouse elbow and all that, I, I think that would be less. And then the other thing is that if your watch turns into a speakerphone, um, I don't want to be sitting next to that guy at the airport. You know, that, you know <laughs> it, it's like the whole right. Bluetooth head you know headphone thing it went from being oh that's the cool guy with a bluetooth headset to the guy that he's like trying too hard to look cool or i, I don't know what um but you know that you know he's not on a call but he's like wearing it all the time in case i don't know the president calls or something um right but you know it's like i and then the other thing too and maybe it's early on is that you gotta charge your phone every couple days or i'm sorry charge your watch supposedly every couple days and, and that reminds me of the the early um digital watches in the 70s so maybe that'll get fixed where the watch batteries um i don't know if you remember the the digital watches from the 70s that um they didn't show the time at all you you actually had to push a button to get the the um the the watch to light up so you could see what time it is because there was such a significant power draw um but it, it's like a bunch of things like that. I, I just I, I, I don't wear a watch or jewelry or things like that unless I really have to. Um, and maybe that's just me. I'm not I, I don't like doing that. But but how, how so you've changed your mind, though. You've, you've come around. I, I used to agree with you on the smartwatch thing. I thought that the ergonomics were going to be impractical. Um, I think there were going to be like technical limitations to it. I didn't like the idea of a Dick Tracy mm -hmm. phone and the Bluetooth effect I totally sympathize with. But I saw the demos after Google I.O. Mm -hmm. uh, of the what these Android smartwatches and the way that they've conceived of them, I think, is different than how I'd assumed it would mm -hmm. work. So they're treating it basically like a second screen to your smartphone. Yes. Which is a... That is a, a real shift, right? So it, they're not trying to make it a replacement for the smartphone, right. which is why right, right. um, they're making it a second screen, right? So especially with Google Now, uh, which is the kind of uh, ambient information source, right? So um, I can open my phone, open to Google, go to Google Now, and it will give me a list of all the things that it's pretty sure I should be worrying about right mm -hmm. now. Um, so when my next meeting is, what the weather's going to be like, what time it is, uh, that kind of... Um, contextual data, mm -hmm. um, which I find really useful. Uh, and I, in fact, I think Google now is a lot more useful than I thought oh, it was yeah. going to be. Um, the idea that I can have that Google now information show up on a watch, uh, seems pretty powerful to me. That seems pretty useful. If I can just like glance at my watch and see not just what time it is, but when my next meeting is, mm -hmm. that seems pretty great. Um, also, uh, if I can take a look at who's calling me without pulling my phone out of my pocket, yep that's also handy yeah. to me, right? Um, if I can see who's sending me text messages, if I can see, you know, whatever the, uh, whatever's going on on my phone today, I have to pull it out of my pocket and take a look at it, which is A, mm -hmm. rude, um, and B, uh, intrusive, right? Especially now with the baby, I don't have two hands all the time, so I can't, um, you know, getting, getting a pot, getting your hand in your pocket to pull your phone out while you're trying to feed a baby a bottle is a very complicated operation. And the idea that I could just like flip, you know, it, it, that it would be as easy as checking the time on, uh, on my mm -hmm. watch, um, is pretty attractive to me. Finally, I'm, you know, I've been using this Fitbit for a few months mm -hmm. now and I'm finding it so useful. Um, but I don't like the idea of having to wear that and a yes. watch. Um, or that and another piece of equipment. And the fact that I could collapse all those functions into one mm -hmm. tool, I think is pretty compelling. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm looking forward to playing with one of these mm. things. Um, I think it could actually be pretty useful. Um, and I'm super interested to see how programmable it might be. Um, so if I could start creating my own cards in Google mm -hmm. now, um, or I could create my own little robots uh, to provide my own contextual mm -hmm. clues, uh, that would be pretty sweet. That'd be pretty great. So, for instance, think of what you could do if you could tie the Google Watch to if this, then mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that could be interesting. Um, I think that could be, yeah, what about, that could be pretty great. Or for the, for that matter, tying it to a Raspberry yeah. Pi. What about the like the human factors of it? Like this is a kind of thing. Like I, I tell Lauren about this as I as I coach her through her um, future, you know, career and all that. Where you know, I, like I, you know, you're sitting down with somebody at lunch. Like you don't pull your phone out and check your email. You know, because that's it, you're basically telling that person that whatever's on my phone is more important than being physically present with that person that sends a wrong message. And your watch kind of does the yeah. same thing too. It's like I'm like if I'm meeting with somebody and I'm worried that um, I'm going to be late for my next call or meeting, you know, I, I super discreetly look at my watch. And still, sometimes people are like, "Oh, you got to go somewhere." Um, and I wonder mm-hmm. if that same sort of etiquette applies, or or would that get worse? Well, so that's a, see. This is one of the things I like about the notion of having the information on a watch is because it it eli it it matches up neatly with some norms that are already in yeah. place, right? So, like you say, everybody knows how to treat a watch in a social situation. Yep. Um, whereas, like a casual glance is probably okay in certain contexts, but most of the time it needs to be yeah. ignored. Um, that's perfect, right? And so, if I have uh, my smartphone information in mm-hmm. a watch, then I know how to treat it without offending yeah. people. Um, even today, after how many years have we had smartphones, mm-hmm. we're still trying to figure out like, okay, well, is it okay if I bring my phone out and put it on the table at lunch? Yeah. Um, well, it is okay as long as I have it face yes. down. Like it's just kind of weak, a weird rules around that. And there's no, uh, there's no consensus around what those rules are. So I'm always in danger of like, of offending somebody unless I just straight up keep my phone. Yeah. My phone. Or in Japan, it's um, like even way different. And we got to go to Adam Clater to get it straightened out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I like the idea of uh, kind of hijacking an existing artifact um, and all the kind of social norms that we have mm-hmm. around it, um, but uh, but providing it additional, additional power and rules, uh, which will ease the adoption, yeah. if that makes any sense. Yeah. And maybe maybe for me, instead of a Google Watch, what I need is like a Google like gold chain with a medallion on it, and then I could I, I could wear my <laughs> the Helixson's Law tank top and. <laughs> a Google pocket book, Google pocket watch. I think. Ah, yeah. About. Like, yeah. If I want to do the yeah. whole steampunk thing, that would be the way to do it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Affixed to your waistcoat. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Nice. Uh, oh, that's awesome. Okay. But we got to, we got, yeah. we got to, yeah, we, there. we're, oh, we're starting cool. to get happy. We need to depress people more. Yeah. So let's talk about how Google is building Skynet. Yeah. yeah so it looks like they are launching, uh, uh, satellites now, right? To to do like a whole, uh, inst- you know, they're, they're almost like bypassing the cable monopoly and, uh, you know, the the whole, you know, the pipes there that they're actually launching satellites to uh, provide uh, internet service. Yeah, and this goes back to the uh, this goes back to the economics of bulk surveillance uh, paper that we talked about in the beginning. Is uh, Google is now seemingly weirdly preoccupied with the idea that uh, that everybody needs internet access, right? Mm-hmm. Because Google's reach and its uh, its value is directly tied to the number of people on the internet, and yeah. so it actually makes sense for them to invest in things like Google Fiber. It makes sense for them to invest in things like this these 180 satellites that are going to provide. Um, it's, you know, satellite uplinks for people in remote areas. Um, they're also investing in uh, low-cost Wi-Fi hardware for businesses, mm-hmm. um, you know, to make sure that uh, cheap Wi-Fi is available everywhere. Um, because all of this stuff makes Google more valuable. Right. Um, and it goes and it goes back to uh, the network effects, right? Um, uh, if Google Google lives or dies by the number of sensors that is tied into its network. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more sensors, uh, the easier it can make for the sensors to get on its network, um, the better off it's going to be, the smarter the company is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so great for access, right? Um, getting internet access to remote areas, that's an unqualified good. Um, if all that access goes through Google and, um, it doesn't even have to be intrusive, you know, like even if they're just, I've noticed that like, uh, when you use the free Google Wi-Fi in airports, mm-hmm. um, it, you're using Google's DNS servers. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if they're not actually watching the traffic and they're just watching the metadata, haha, um, all they have to do is look at the DNS queries that are happening on the network and they know exactly where everyone is visiting, um, which makes them, again, smarter. Um, so it's, uh, it's a weird trade-off. And as an individual, we're kind of so far removed from the harms or the risks um, of this kind of like pervasive intelligence or this like pervasive surveillance, um, that it makes it difficult to make the case to like Joe Schmo at Charlotte airport and say, Hey, you know, have you really thought about what it, 
you know, what the consequences of using like Google's Wi-Fi are, he's going to be like, no, I got great Wi-Fi and then it was free. So, you know, why am I complaining? Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of these, uh, it's one of the pernicious things about this, uh, about, again, the economics of this, uh, of this bulk surveillance. Mm-hmm. Anyway, kind of interesting. But it was, uh, we rag on Google a lot. We rag on Google. I mean, we probably talk about Google in every episode, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We should probably talk about Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. They've, they've done some interesting things lately um, where um, now they've, they've done some interesting things where um, they can show you ads based upon your browsing in, uh, history. So whether or not you're using the Facebook website, it actually has this partnership with other advertising people that are tracking you with all your session cookies and all that. And it goes into this big, I don't know, whatever. And then Facebook will uh, use your browsing history to show you ads inside of Facebook, assuming you're not using like Adblock Plus like I do. Um, but, um, and, and the other thing that's interesting there is that, um, so it's rolling out to the U.S. Facebook users in a couple weeks um, and other users in other countries, I guess, where that's legal uh, in other weeks. Um, but the thing is, is that you're automatically opted in um, and you have to explicitly opt out with the digital advertising allowance and, or I'm sorry, the digital advertising alliance. And, um, and I, I went over to the website to see what, what it was about to opt out. And what was interesting is it was, it seems to be not on a login basis, but more of a, um, per web browser basis. So if you have, uh, you know, five computers and, and a tablet and a, a cell phone, for every browser that you're running on there, you need it, it appears that way that you need to go into uh, this website and opt out on every single browser you're using. And I presume it'll set a, it'll take whatever your profile is and then set a cookie or whatever um, to say that you're opted out. Um, but it's is is pretty pretty creepy. And and the other thing that Facebook uh, like I don't know if you follow the whole do not track uh, setting that is. Yeah, I was gonna say it seems like uh, I was gonna say it seems like. It seems like Google should be, or listen to me, it seems like Facebook should just uh, honor the do not track setting in my browser, right? Um, yep. That's because that's exactly what it's designed to do so that you don't have to go turn it off on every cookie or, you know, every identity. You just set the setting in your browser and everybody honors it, right? I thought we already had a system for this. Yeah, well, well, it's, what's interesting there is it, it is, it's again, it's a per browser setting and in different browsers, and different versions of different browsers will have that set on or off by default, and it's it's very different. Um, and yeah, and and so you can imagine for I think it was Microsoft Internet Explorer um, had do not track set by default uh, for a while. Um, and so like whether people wanted to be tracked or not, that you know by default they were. Um, and then but what would happen is you know, that that would get sent to a web request and, and hopefully um, Twitter or whoever or Facebook or whoever would um, respect those wishes of that setting. But I, I guess what they're saying is I don't think it's a standard yet. And, and until it is a standard and until they decide whether it being on or off by default is the standard default, um, it's going to ignore that setting. Right, right. Yeah, so the, so do not track seems like a really good idea, you know, having the websites on an honor system to to honor the flag when you're when you make your requests. Um, but we had yeah, once browsers started shipping with do not track flipped on by default, then the advertisers like Facebook said, "Well, now you've broken the broken the promise, right? Now I don't know if somebody's affirmatively set this to do not track, so I can no longer trust the setting." And so the whole system gets thrown out the window. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's terrible uh, but at least it's confined just to my online behavior right it's not tied to like my credit card purchases or any of that other stuff like none of that stuff's been correlated I, there's there's still there's still a bright line between my online behavior and my offline behavior right no totally not it's now sweet yeah <laughs> so there there have been some uh, studies and and if you go to this Ars Technica article that, that we put in the in the um, in there there are some links in there of that show you like you're, you're being tracked in the physical world too, like how many kids you have, how old you are, how much money you're making and all that. Um, and then there's like some, um, uh, the, there are some 
opt-out forms that you can go to, and it's just so incredibly onerous. And there's like, it, there isn't like one button that you pick and then you're like opted out. Um, it, there's just like a bazillion places that you would have to go to, to to opt out of being tracking. And like I looked at it, not I thought it would be hopefully something simple like the do not call registry, you know, for the telemarketers, which works really well. Um, but it it doesn't. It's not that simple. It's it's like I, I, check out that link, and, and it's it is just really depressing of of how hard it is for you to like not be tracked. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I guess the the silver lining is that this information they're collecting, whether it's online or offline, is only being used uh, for uh, selling me advertising, right? It's not like they're actually trying to like manipulate my emotions or or, or manipulate my experience, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. So that's. That's the other thing. I'm sure people have seen this by now. That that Facebook, um, they published a paper talking about how they manipulated. They did uh, some psychological experiments on 600,000 of their users, where they had a control group and then they had a um, you know the experiment group, where they manipulated the Facebook feeds of users, where um, they would only show or they would dominate, they would show a, a greater proportion of happy posts um, to some of the people, show a, a greater proportion of like sad posts to uh, other people, and then see what the posts are between those two groups as to whether their posts would be happy or sad, and to see if they could, uh, if behavior would be changeable based upon the, uh, the, the emotion conveyed in the feeds that they're reading. So they, they published it's, a paper about it, and it was like, and then and, and they were like surprised that people were outraged. <laughs> well, I think the uh, there's a there's a counter argument to this, which is that this is no different than the A/B testing that Facebook and Google and uh, really any other web-based company does all the time, right? Um, in fact, anybody advertising online does this now, where you put out you know, two, three different versions of an advertisement and see which one does the best and then mm-hmm. uh, refine your strategy based on that. Is this any, is this really any different than that? Like, or what makes this substantively different than just your usual A-B testing uh, of a uh, of web content? Well, I think the difference is that the ad, you know that it's an ad and, and you know, so they're using my search results to give me relevant ads. So it's sort of, that's mm-hmm. the bargain I'm making. For that service, mm-hmm. where right. here my the the value of what I'm getting is influenced, it, you know, is externally being influenced without me being asked for one thing. So it's not like I'm only searching for depressing posts. I'm I'm being pushed depress depressing posts, and they're trying to see if my behavior would change beyond that. And I could, mm-hmm. you know, I, and I don't know if it's an extreme example, but I could imagine if somebody was having psychological problems and they were depressed. Um, and they did something to hurt themselves um, as a result of just seeing like like a lot of depressing uh, posts like one after another. If you know, can a company be liable for that? There's probably something right. in the EULA that says that they're not held liable, but but to skew the post that that could be bad. And you could also imagine from a, a government manipulation standpoint, if a government wanted to manipulate a a uh, you know, somebody's feed uh, to see only happy things. You know, think about censor- censorship or Tiananmen Square. And, and mm-hmm. obviously a lot of that stuff is going on as far as censorship. Um, but, you know, to almost have this, you know, happy talk uh, within a country to say, oh, there's no outrage, everything's wonderful here. And, and then they bury the other posts that aren't as uh, flattering to, you know, whoever's trying, whoever's controlling the feed. Right, right. Um, but it's, sorry, you mentioned Tiananmen Square and censorship, and that reminds me of a uh, that reminds me of this post. I guess it was on, on Tumblr or something. I'll, we'll include a link to it in the show notes. But it's a uh, it's a photo of the Facebook like symbol, you know, the thumbs up. Mm-hmm. Um, and underneath it, it's a quote by Orwell uh, from uh, from 1984 uh, discussing uh, the need to uh, for a government to reduce the range of expression in citizens. Uh, so that uh, if you can limit the way that people express themselves, um, you can limit the way that they think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if we reduce the idea of, oh, I like this, or I appreciate this, or I'm in love with this, if we reduce all of those expressions to one symbol, which is the thumbs up, um, mm-hmm. then we can 
uh, we can um, use that as a as a course of measure for uh, compl anyway. It's, well, oh, that's we'll, that's we'll Newspeak. Yeah, Newspeak exactly. Yeah, right. exactly. We're, yeah. we're in 1984. They they were happy with the dictionary getting smaller and smaller and smaller um, because if they're you know by removing words and all that and, and it's really interesting how they would instead of I guess I don't know if it's well hate isn't a good example but instead of they could get rid of hate by saying not love. Yes. And, right. and, and double plus not love, you know, or whatever. Right, so right. Uh, they could, um, and, and so they can get, you know, uh, yeah. So that isn't, um, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. So it was kind of the social engineering thing, but, mm -hmm. but sorry, back to the, uh, but back to Facebook's experiment. Um, one, one angle of criticism on this is that it was being done as a psychological experiment explicitly, right? It was like published by the proceedings in the National Academy of Sciences. And isn't there an ethical problem with using 600,000 people as uh, experimental subjects? Mm -hmm. Like, did they, get, did they get explicit consent from 600,000 people to do this? Right. Um, and was their consent to be subject to A-B testing for advertising, is that the same as... Uh, uh, consent to having like a full-blown psychological or like a coercive psychological experiment run on them. Um, it's interesting. I think it's, it's interesting. It brings up a bunch of interesting questions and it's also interesting that Facebook was surprised at the, at the backlash, yes. um, which shows how kind of casually they treat this kind of thing. It seems. Yeah. Well, the, the disregard and, um, and even, even too, it's like informed consent, I think is a big deal. Right. So there's there's always like you always see the the checkbox of, oh, help us make this experience bigger by clicking this box and we'll send anonymous information back to whatever, to, you know, to rate, you know, and, and maybe that by you clicking that, you know, opens you up to certain things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Um, it's like uh, John Oliver said in that uh, that wonderful net neutrality uh, episode, uh, he says you could actually take Mein Kampf and uh, wrap it in the iTunes user agreement and people would just say, accept, 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 accept. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so the idea of not just consent, but informed consent, right? Um, yep. that, that makes a, makes a big difference. Um, so, but we got some good news too, right? Yeah. So and, enough talking about Hitler, George Orwell and Tiananmen Square. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, the, so this idea of, you know, the, uh, in many ways, like a consumer is at war with these web properties over their privacy or their data or how it's being used, or at least there's a, uh, um, not coercive or not a, uh, not a war, but, um, their needs are in conflict. Um, at the same time, the needs of these commercial providers is also in conflict with the government. And, uh, in this kind of triangulation, the citizen benefits or the consumer benefits, uh, because now Gmail, knowing that now that they know that the U.S. government is spying on everything it can, uh, they are introducing, at long last, uh, seamless end-to-end -end encryption to Gmail. Um, and even better is they're not inventing their own way of doing it. They're actually using uh, the well-understood GPG system mm -hmm. to do it, um, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I saw that, and I, I thought that was pretty cool. And then, but because that was one of the problems is that if you're, you know, for people that are using... Um, GPG, um, you want the person on the other end to be able to, um, you know, they almost have to use it if you want to verify signatures or decrypt stuff. So it's, it becomes a, that becomes an adoption barrier. Um, mm -hmm. and, but then I, I went and I looked at this and I'm like, oh man, this is a, a Chrome plugin only. And, and that were, mm -hmm. which I wish there was, you know, Hey, let's, let's do a Firefox one and all that. And, you know, because with a lot of the webmail, you know, even if, you know, you're a big GPG fan. There's a lot of people that are using things like Gmail and all that, where there isn't an easy way to use GPG within a web browser. And now they're doing it, and it's through a Chrome plugin. But I, I wish there was, uh, you know, they did plugins for, uh, you know, the other browsers as well. Because I, I just sure. really worry that Chrome is going to turn into the next Internet Explorer 6. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. It should be as cross-platform as possible. And that's why I'm a little bit hopeful that it's, at least if it's built on the PGP system, yeah. um, there's a fighting chance that we could get like more you know, broad adoption, right? So that um, if I'm reading in my chosen mail user agent, um, I would still be able to communicate securely with somebody, securely and transparently with somebody who's using Gmail through their web interface. Um, I hope that that is, I hope that that would be the case. Um, the second thing is that there are, is a movement underway uh, or there's efforts underway to put 
proper encryption libraries and build them into the web browsers themselves, which mm -hmm. would allow you to do things like run a browser resident version of PGP, which would do things like allow you to write uh, like an open source plugin for mm -hmm. any given browser that would use JavaScript to ma manipulate text boxes to do the encryption, right? So in other words, um, to be able to do what Google was talking about, to be able to do that for anybody and, and actually have it be standards-based. Um, yeah. It turns out that the, the long pull on the tent there is uh, being able to securely, properly run encryption inside a browser, which is, uh, turns out that's hard. Uh, well, because, and, you know, and key management, right? And key management. Yeah. So how do you, yeah. like, the, I think one of the reasons why with Chrome, you know, it's one of the things that they've been working on is having Chrome live offline so you could have offline data stored and everything and you know your private keys and your public keys those are things that you need to keep around and you know so what happens like in firefox you blow your cache away and it it wipes out all that stuff um having a way to do that you know small little bit of storage to keep around that survives is important well and so this this uh this got brought up on matthew burton's excellent podcast um this <laughs> matt at one point says why is it still in this day and age why is it still so hard to use pgp um and clay shirky um who gets his reputation for a very good reason um <laughs> clay comes back with a very clay shirky kind of response which is the kinds of people who are interested in using PGP are the kinds of people who are interested in the underpinnings of PGP and how PGP works under the covers. And so the kind of awkward command line interfaces um, and the kind of cl general clunkiness of the PGP experience mm -hmm. is because it is catering to the market of people who are interested in PGP, right? Yep. Um, there hasn't been a, a mass market for uh, for easy to use transparent software. Um, if there was, somebody would build an interface for it and lo and behold, that's exactly what Google's doing now. Mm -hmm. um, and so with any luck, Google making this move of encrypting uh, with the web-based email um, end-to-end will encourage both other mail providers to do the same thing and also encourage folks in the open source and open standards community to come up with a, maybe a more general case solution to this. And hopefully ultimately, as you say, making browsers smarter on things like uh, key management um, so that this doesn't have to be tied to a particular service and that anyone can benefit from it. Yeah, like I, I think in the same way that I could, within my browser, keep certificates and, you know, X509 certificates for that matter and, and other things, you know, why not do GPG certificates? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, makes total sense to me. Um, let's see, and then we got a, I guess we got one more. On a light note, um, there is a hilarious Onion video um, describing a, a new corporate initiative to tag and release uh, American consumers. And so these images of like people running across a lawn and getting shot with a dart and then like tagged with a, <laughs> tagged with like an ARFID uh, so they can be released and then studied by uh, by American advertisers is, uh, is pretty funny. <laughs> very, very appropriate for this episode too. Yes, very appropriate for this episode. That's right. Um, so what kind of events we got coming up, Dave? Oh, well, we got defense in depth, so you could wear your tinfoil hat and fit in with, with uh, everybody at this uh, event, and that's on July 30th. Um, so, and space, registration is open now. Space is limited to, like, 250 people, and so sign up now because it's, it's going fast. Um, nice. August 21st, we got lowering the cost of government uh, IT, and, and you're doing a keynote there, right? Yep, sure am. Yep, sure. and... Um, Lauren is uh, unveiling her Raspberry Pi um, juggling kit at uh, in, in Kent, Ohio, on August 23rd um, at uh, where Charles Pichock is uh, doing some uh, a juggling show. So we'll, we'll be at that. Still looking forward to that. That's going to be great. Yep. Um, and then, uh, Dave, you know, there's one company out there that doesn't that explicitly does not want its customers' data, uh, and that's the company that we work for, Red Hat. Yes. Um, and uh, the way that we can prove this conviction is uh, Jamie Duncan, who's a part of our fantastic support organization, uh, just put up on GitHub this uh, SOS Cleaner tool. Um, do you want to tell folks about that, Dave? Yeah, yeah. So for uh, people that are uh, so SOS Cleaner, what is that? Well, it, it's a cleaner for SOS reports, right? Um, so what is an SOS report? So um, so whenever you call our hotline up um, and, you know, the support tech will be like, oh, well, in, you know, what is the value of this file? What is the value, you know, what are the values in these config files? What is your kernel version? What, you know, where, where are you, what channels are you subscribed to in RHN? Um, if, you know, can you give me a copy of your log files? 
um, well, I need your XORG log file. And, I, you know, and, and so instead of doing all of that and all that back and forth, we wrote a long time ago uh, a thing called SOS report, which will basically suck all the identifiable information out of the system that support needs to use to diagnose problems like, oh, how's your cluster configured? You know, send me that config file. So there's a lot of config files and things like that. Um, so that's pretty cool. It, what it'll do is it'll it'll create this this tar archive of of megabytes of information, log files, config files, all that stuff. And then it's one file that you upload to the customer portal that we could analyze and take a look at and everything. Um, but the problem with that is that for a lot of our customers, there are there's identifiable information and in things like your syslog of IP addresses and host names that people typically don't want to have go out. And so what will happen is for, especially for a lot of our classified customers, going through and, you know, what they have to do is they have to take syslog print it out, which, you know, is humongous, and then go through it, redact it, and, you know, with a Sharpie, all, all the identifying information, get it blessed by their security officer, and then fax it into Red Hat for us to scan in and add to the case. And so that's like crazy, right? And so what, yeah. what Jamie came up with was a SOS cleaner, which he put up on uh, GitHub, and he made RPMs for it and all that stuff, so that's pretty awesome. Um, and so that is there where you could take an SOS report pump it through the SOS cleaner, and it'll automatically strip out all that information. And the cool thing here is that not only does it redact that information, but it'll actually put names in there of, of things uh, so you can keep track of stuff. So it'll it'll change, you know, like if you have like a four-node cluster and you have four unique IP addresses, it'll be like IP1, IP2, IP3. So whenever you're looking at the log file, you could identify that, oh, IP3 is the one that is dying and is failing. So whenever, um, so the customer and the support tech could refer to IP3 in the abstract, but then the customer can look at the uncleansed uh, log file and say that, oh, that's the third node in my cluster, and that's the one that I need to I need to do some uh, repairing on. So it's really cool. I'm I'm really glad that uh, Jamie's doing that. And you know, it's uh, the the cool thing too is that. It's not just our guys in the core engineering that are writing code and giving away and putting it out there. It's it's really it's us living the open source lifestyle um, in every single department that we're in, where we we have people in the support organization, the consulting organization, writing code and putting it out there uh, on GitHub and and giving giving it away. You know, uh, SCAP security guides another example. So for Sean Wells to give us twenty dollars, um, you know, there there's a you know, having that out there in open source is really cool. I'm excited about that. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's excellent. Oh, the other okay, thing nice. too, the other thing too is that um, a word of warning is that you know your mileage may vary, and and so it's still up to you. Like you don't want to blindly pump that through SOS Cleaner and then mail it in and then without talking to your security officer. You still want to go over the document with a fine tooth comb to make sure we didn't miss anything. And if we did miss something. It's an open source project, so patches are welcome and, and feedback is welcome too. Very cool, very cool. That's nice, nice. Uh, ended on an up note. Nicely done, Dave. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Uh, well, that's all I got. You're all, anything? Anything else for you? Well, we had all kinds of things. So if if people need to see those pictures of of people getting uh, RFID tagged in the Onion article, where where do they need to go? <laughs> um, yeah, they should definitely go to uh, DG Show. Uh, dot org. Uh, that's D as in Dave, G as in Gunner. Show. Dot org. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks, Gunner. All right. Thanks, Dave. Bye, everybody. <laughs>